Over the last five months, the stories I've heard about Susan Martin are like something from a nightmare. The passion with which she is so hated by everyone I've spoken to is usually reserved for despots, for murderers. So the question persisted, how has this woman managed to get away with so much for so long? The Berean kids I speak to are still at a loss. For some reason, Mrs. Martin was like, they put her in charge, the most violent, evil woman there. They put her in charge. She kind of put herself in charge, though, if you ask me. And, like, I don't know why Berean did this. I don't know why Pastor Jim did this, because I know he got lots of complaints about Mrs. Martin and how aggressive she was all the time. So let me continue to try to answer this question to explain why Mrs. Martin hasn't been driven out of Milford yet by villagers bearing pitchforks. As I see it, there are three sources to Susan's power, three legs propping her up like a proverbial stool. As detailed in my last episode, one of those foundations was her ability, codified in the parent-student handbook, to force herself between students and their parents and make herself the ultimate arbiter of all things Milford Christian. The second foundation, Susan's personality itself, lies more on the surface. You heard multiple tales now about her seemingly endless well of unblinking, easy cruelty, her inability to take no for an answer, and, to put it bluntly, the fact that she did not give one flying fuck what other people thought. But I want to break those down a little further so you can really get a sense of not only what kind of person we're dealing with, but what kind of institution would let that kind of person stick around? Because at Milford Christian, Susan Martin isn't just an anomaly. At Milford Christian, the cruelty is the point. I'm Jessica Fritz Aguirre, and this is Sticky Beak, Season 3, Episode 8 Child of Destiny. Walk, softly, children. Thank you to our sponsors, JPEX Financial and probate attorney Nia Sradosky. JPEX is a female-owned and operated financial services company. Jamie and Carol can help you plan for all phases of life, from homing in on retirement to planning for your children's education. Whatever the milestone may be, they'll be there to serve you. Please visit their website, www.jpexfinancial.com or call 860-430-5397 to speak with Carol or Jamie and take care of your financial future. And make sure your estate is in order with Nia Sardosky, a probate attorney who did mine and Joe's estate planning, something we've been putting off for years. Nia is excellent at her job and gave us peace of mind for our future. Please call 860-966-9968 or visit ncsestateprobatelaw.com. You all know by now that Susan was not only good at instilling fear in children, she reveled in it. Here's Phyllis, who thought Susan was, and I quote, so nasty 
a witch from hell. I didn't like how the children were being treated. See, I even did substitute. Uh, I did substitute a teacher there myself. Okay. And the kids all loved me. I treated them with so much love and respect, you know. And whenever, whenever she would come in, everybody would like freeze up. It was like they didn't dare even whisper. Yeah. That's how scared they were of this woman. Berean kids were in a constant state of anxiety, a fight or flight. Some played it smart, doing everything to stay off the radar. Now, were you getting paddled? Occasionally. I mean, it was, I tried to be a really goody good kid because I was terrified. So I mostly tried to stay alone, but there were some times that I, I did get paddled. Some were just the lucky beneficiaries of the fact that Susan was always dreaming up ways to keep children in line. There were always kids that she didn't beat, one woman told me. Sometimes she would pull kids in to make it look like they were getting paddled, but just hung out with them for a while and told them to go back and tell people they got swatted. She did that for me a few times, I won't lie, but only when I got older. Other kids seemed lucky too, like Susan's daughter, Emily. Well, you see, Emily... I think Mrs. Martin liked Emily. So Emily was kind of like a pet to her at a while, for a while. Okay. And I think so was While the verdict was out on Emily Martin, Susan had made other supposed pets aware of the classroom's secret intercom, enlisting them as unwilling spies forced to do everything they could to make their tormentor happy. They were only Susan's pets so much as they would do for Susan, I was told. Susan didn't actually like them. I think that's part of the brain fuck. How people would think Susan loved them, but they felt so small. And if they were going to say Susan is being cruel to me, no one would believe them. For most kids, as the song goes, if it wasn't for bad luck, they wouldn't have no luck at all. When Susan set out to paddle a kindergartner for picking his nose, he ran to the bathroom, locked the door, and hid behind the toilet. No worries. Susan simply got the key, dragged him out, and paddled him over the sink. Children did whatever they could to stay home from school. One boy hid in the back of the car as his mom dropped his siblings off. It was only on the way home that she caught the reflection of his jacket in the car's rear windows. It was dreadful to go to school every day. I remember there was one time where I was literally almost to the school and you know, back then it was kind of frowned upon if you needed therapy or you had mental issues and at least in my family, in my area. And I remember we were like maybe 30 second drive, 30 seconds away from the school. And I looked at my Nana and I just cried and I told her I was sick. And I was like, can you please take me home? Just because I didn't want to deal with it that day. And she looked at me and she's like, are you sick? And I was, I just said, yeah, because I told her like, oh, I'm like, yeah, my stomach hurts. I feel like I'm going to puke. And I had her take me home just because I knew that day, I think the previous day, something had happened and Mrs. Martin was like going on about something. And she's like, oh, you all wait till tomorrow. So I literally on the way there was like having a panic attack. Didn't even know what a panic attack was, anything like that. I didn't know about anxiety and all that crap, but that's what it was, was now that I'm older, I know it was a panic attack, and I was just so scared to go to school that I played hooky, 
and I didn't do it often. You couldn't stay home from school every day, but you could certainly try to get as far away as possible. When one girl ran out of the building and down the road to avoid a beating, Susan bragged that she had caught her after kicking off her shoes to run after her. Apparently, this was before the wheelchair. A little boy was just as successful. He was wearing navy dress pants and a white button-down, one source texted me, and ran as fast as he could down the street and tried to climb a telephone pole. Mr. Muir chased him down and caught him. Some kids were able to find some relief with their families, like Andrew with his horror movies. Some children only attended the academy and not the church, so they got some distance on the long-anticipated weekends. The woman who had been forced to sign Susan's contract kept her head above water by, as she phrased it, always trying to find loopholes around Brian's crazy. Recently, that woman told a friend about standing up to Susan and writing, Because you made me. The friend, who'd also grown up in a strict religious household, was almost in tears. She was telling me, the little rebel said, how I always had a strong sense of self, an inner compass. She was beating herself up over her experience because she said if she had to say something out loud, she told herself to believe it. She's 50 years old, and it took years and years to regain her sense of self. She had it worse than me. Her mother was telling her the same things at home, so she didn't really have an escape. Having no escape route was more the norm, so Bahrain survivors latched onto little things for comfort. Sometimes, those things were literally little. Did I tell y'all I brought a chihuahua to school every day for the last six months of my senior year, one wrote? He lived in my sweatshirt. His name was Face. I made my brother take me out of school early one day after my 16th birthday. I had a bunch of cash. He drove me to the breeder's house, and I bought a puppy without telling my parents. She sent me a photo of Face with her boxer, whose name, funnily enough, was Fritz. But I couldn't leave him alone, she continued, so I brought him to school, and he lived in my shirt, ate out of a snack Ziploc baggie, and drank from my water bottle. I let him pee behind the trailers. It was only a secret for, like, a week. Kathy Loomer tried to give me a hard time, which, like, fair, it was supposed to be a school. Music was my outlet, said another, and it saved my life when I was 13. I completely understand going somewhere else while there. I would practice on my arm or pen during class, moving my fingers, memorizing my music. It gets darker. My dad bought me a horse when I was 12, said one student. I spent all of my time at the farm, in lessons or working or taking naps in hay bales. Susan let me leave school early every day, saying the farm replaced gym class. If I didn't have that, I probably would have killed myself. The depression and anxiety were so overwhelming when I was anywhere but the farm. She continued, I can slip into a dissociative state at the slightest discomfort now without the buzzing, but as a kid, when I needed some peace, I'd just fill my head with bees, and the constant hum of their buzzing was calmer than my home, or school, or wherever. I don't remember any of my high school experience. I was checked out for the entire thing. I was a fucking pro at not really being in a room I was sitting in. But it also got me in trouble. Because when I was a kid, I couldn't control it at all. And I got beat and screamed at for not listening when I was just not there. Hearing me broadcast about the adults who knew something was wrong 
the kids' reaction is a mixed bag. The more adults that come forward saying they knew it was crazy, the more hurt I'm getting, one wrote. It's not the overwhelming emotion, but it's definitely there. Yep, another woman responded. Like, why did this go on for so long? The anger many feel over how long this was allowed to continue has not softened with the passage of time. Asked to write a review of Berean, one responded with this. What I want for the people that hurt us is for them to be on their deathbeds, fearing the hell that awaits them, knowing what they've done to so many people. I want their final screams pleading to their dead god to be my ringtone. I want food to turn to ash in their mouths. I want them to suffer. A thousand lifetimes of pain could never be enough. Maybe it went on that long because parents were inspired by Mrs. Martin's example. I was at Emily's house a lot, one of Emily Martin's friends told me, and the kids were constantly getting paddled and screamed at. Susan didn't care who was there, what was there, who was listening, who saw. If they were getting it, they were just getting it. And Emily wasn't just Susan's example in the figurative sense. At that mandatory parent orientation meeting that kicked off each school year and other mandatory meetings scattered throughout the calendar, Susan would literally bring her little daughter out to demonstrate, for all the moms and dads, how to properly paddle a child. She did it for new teacher orientations, too. She'd treat the parents to a demonstration of her preferred method, show them how to make their children assume the position. Hands flat on the desk, bent at the hips, flat back, feet flat on the floor. She'd put her hand on your lower back, a student told me, to keep you from moving and getting hurt, she said, and then you'd hear her whine back. That was the demonstration-worthy swat. At home, I heard, Emily made Susan chase her, and when you boiled it down, Mrs. Martin didn't give a shit if she hurt you or not. We were walking across the fellowship hall, and they had these, like, fake blue walls that were on wheels that you could, like, move around to create, like, a room. And I was fairly young, probably, like, seven or eight, somewhere around there. I'm horrible at years, but maybe even six but you just heard Emily Martin screaming, like bloody murder screaming, like the kind of screaming you do when you are being severely hurt and there's nothing else you can do besides scream. And she was not punishing Emily, not spanking Emily. She was beating Emily. You can hear it. And I think she was using one of the paddles from the office that they would spank kids with. And you just hear crack, 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 crack over and over and over. And the fellowship hall is fairly big. It took probably 30, 45 seconds to walk across. And I don't know how long she was getting beat before we came in. And I don't know how long she was getting beat after we left. But I just know she was screaming, Mommy, I didn't do it please. And then she was just screaming and crying and pleading for her to stop. Adults heard it too. And just like at the demonstrations, even if they objected, they didn't let on. Her own daughter, she was like five years old at the time. Emily, we were in the fellowship hall, right? Because the fellowship hall was made into classrooms. So all around, you know, all around the walls, all the walls, 
will, will extend it out to my classrooms, right? Otherwise, it was um, it was for eating in the middle, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people would be sitting at the tables there waiting for the rides to come or something like that. And a lot of the parents would be sitting there, you know, and this particular day, her, she took her daughter, Emily, and I'm sure if you tell, ask Emily, she will very, very well verify this. She took that paddle, and she took her in a room at the one end of the hall, okay? Mm-hmm. When she hit her, you could hear the paddle hit her ass, and that kid screamed. And she, you think she stopped? No. She kept, and then we say, Mommy, please hurt me. Mommy, hurt me. And she kept it up, and everybody heard it. And I mean, unbelievable. I mean, you don't do that to little kids like that. Susan's fellow teachers weren't immune to suffering under her iron rule. There were some nice teachers there, but it seemed like sometimes they got caught up or got their hand forced for them to do things they didn't really want to do. Again, the common denominator was fear. I know the kids were scared of her, but it sounds like a lot of the adults were too. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it was like everybody was afraid of her. You know, she, like my daughter, for a while my daughter was a teacher there. Yeah. And it was almost like Mrs. Martin didn't think she could do a good enough job. She'd always be coming in and interfering with her teaching and everything, you know? And finally, my daughter had it, and she left. So she would just walk into the class and take over? Yes. Yes. She did it with every one of her teachers. She Mm. thought she knew more than them. Just because they made her the principal, she thought she could do whatever she pleased. Years later, the fact of her daughter being forced out still rankles. Well, like I said... She was over there trying to teach the classes, which my daughter's on the dean's list now. She also was on the dean's list in college and everything. And Miss Martin, I don't even think went to high school. I don't even know where she went. And to, to tell my daughter, you know, make my daughter feel bad that, oh, she, she does things this way or she does things that way or whatever. Susan's concrete refusal to take no for an answer was another weapon in her arsenal of wearing people down. And I definitely got the impression because I asked Emily, I said, isn't anyone saying no to her? Because she gave me examples of things that other teachers had been ordered to do by Miss Martin, by her mother. And she said, no, it's just not an option to say no to her. Yeah, she didn't take that well. Like when I, she would never take no for an answer. Like, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. When I finally did visit the school after I left, like, I went back there for some reason. Not the school, but the church, like, the, the church service. And Mrs. Martin came up to us to say hello, and I refused to make eye contact with her. And she was, like, waiting for me to, like, you know, say hello. Mm-hmm. But she was my teacher for years. Yeah. And I refused to acknowledge her presence. She finally walked away. She was like, ah, and there's nothing she could do because she wasn't. She wasn't controlling me anymore. And you're an and that adult was the first now. first time I could stick up for myself. And I was, I must have been like 13 or 14 at that time. Susan didn't care if you were 13 or 30. There was no one she wouldn't take on. In our conversation, you know how you asked me, why didn't people like stand up to her, like adults? Mm-hmm. And a couple things like came to mind after we talked. Like, I remember watching her get in a screaming match with, it was, I think her name was Mr. Muir. 
Do you know what they were fighting about? I don't, because I was like, I was walking across the parking lot, but I just heard them screaming at each other and saw them in each other's faces. This cost Susan many friends, including one whose daughter's name she helped pick out. There was a teacher there, but really liked Mrs. Martin at first. She really did. They were like buddy buddies. They used to, you know, her husband and and. Uh, they used to go out, like, to dinners together, and then they start seeing the evil side of her, where she really, she really lost control. I mean, really lost control. Another woman and her husband used to vacation with Mr. and Mrs. Martin every October at a Vermont bed and breakfast until their relationship blew up in a screaming match. A third quietly tolerated Susan until she decided enough was enough and left the church entirely. For a while, was going along with, with Susan, so the same way. You know what I mean? And I think I think a lot of it was out of fear because Miss, Mrs. Martin, she has a very strong personality, <laughs> which, you know what I mean? Yeah. In the right way. And um, I just feel like, you know, the church went down after Pastor Scallon died. And, and the school became a school because, I mean, it could have been wonderful. I mean, everybody was looking forward to, yeah, we won't send our kids to public school. We'll, we'll let them go to the Christian school because it'll learn biblical principles. and You know what I mean? And it'll be better for the kids. But believe me, it didn't turn out better for the kids. Mostly, though, teachers kept their mouths shut, even when they understood something was very wrong with Susan. One teacher I'll call Pam was there the day the student in the white button-down tried to flee up the telephone pole. A bunch of us were in the parking lot as the chase happened, a former student texted me. And Pam just told me, she was like, I wonder what the people driving by are thinking. That's when something clicked in her, and she started realizing the school was messed up. Pam found quiet ways around Susan's wrath. I had her in third or fourth grade and I had undiagnosed ADHD, one woman told me. I remember she used to send me on walks to get my energy out instead of sending me to the office, to Susan, for my giggle fits. Another time, Pam stepped in when Susan decided that Andrew, then presenting as a little girl, was to be paddled for playing tag. And then there was another time where it was also recess, and it was storming, so we had to come inside for the other half of our recess. And the teacher had walked out, and she told us she'd be back in a minute. And me and a fellow classmate were just being silly and, like, trying to tag each other. And we had desks in between us, so it was kind of like, he went this way, well, I went that way, kind of back and forth. Like, I'm going to get you around the desks. And Mrs. Martin, again, like a shadow, came in and saw us and acted like we were doing something sexual or like something bad. And she took both of us and brought us to the office and told them that we were being inappropriate with each other and being a nuisance and not in our seats, which you didn't have to stay in your seat during recess. So 
I didn't understand that. And we were chasing each other inappropriately. And Mrs. came by and heard what was going on. And she grabbed my hand and she goes, I'll take care of her. You do. And I was crying, of course, because I didn't want to get spanked. And Mrs. kind of looked down at me and she goes, it's better if I do it. She goes, you don't want her to do it. And she brought me in there with the paddle and she barely, she spanked me, but not hard at all. Like it was just a pat pat. And she told me to cry. She goes, when you leave the office, she goes, cry. Which I was already crying because, you know, I thought I was in deep shit. The undue deference paid to Susan would have horrifying consequences. Here's Andrew again with a story from when he was six or seven. Having mandated ballet for all female students, the school brought in a balance beam. They expected me to do the balance beam. And they're like, oh, well, we'll hold you. You know, we'll have a person on each side of you. So I trusted them and I got up there and they were holding me. But they, like, let go. You know, they only had, like, kids my age holding me. It's not like the teachers or any older people were helping me. So it's not like they could really catch my fall if I did fall, which I did. (laughs) Because of the way my body is, it's very hard for me to put my legs together, like, close together. So when I went to go take another step forwards, my foot slipped And I fell and hit my arm on the balance beam and then landed on the ground, also on my arm. So I don't know which part hit my arm, but I know I pretty much started screaming and crying. And I knew I had either fractured it or broke it because I, being handicapped, have broke my arm four, no, five times before the age of 12. So I know what it feels like. And picked me up and brought me into the room. It's the first room on the right of the hall. And it was used for like a nursery. And she was trying to calm me down. Andrew's mom, the one who had been on the dean's list, was a Berean teacher at the time. I remember my mom being there and wanting to take me to the hospital. And for some reason, Mrs. Martin always, you know, she always would get involved in everything. She was like a ghost or a shadow. Like she was always around doing something. So I'm there crying. was trying to get me to calm down. And she was joking with me and playing with her bracelet, a little game or something to make me laugh. And I, I had laughed and Mrs. Martin came freaking bulldozing through the door and calling me a liar, telling me that if I'm in here laughing, I couldn't possibly be in pain and hurting. And she just kept calling me a liar. She was even telling my mother that I was lying and not to take me to the hospital, that I needed to get back to class. I was wasting time and fooling around and I wasn't hurt at all. And It turned out my arm was fractured. When Andrew tripped and broke his arm again at school, his first thought wasn't the pain. It was Susan. A freaking crowd had gathered around me, of course, because I was crying. And I'm like, oh, my God. I just kept saying, 
they're gonna kill me mrs martin's gonna kill me i didn't want to be again on the ground this was after the balance beam incident i I didn't want mrs martin hear anything of it and luckily she didn't come that time seems like those who were there picked andrew up by his broken arm and dragged him to a nurse not good for much more than taking temperatures and handing out band-aids she and those who witnessed the fall told andrew his arm wasn't broken that he was being dramatic that he didn't need his mom. This wasn't the only time Berean downplayed a child's medical needs. So I think it took about an hour for them to finally call my mom. And she's trying to tell my mom, yeah, your daughter thinks her arm's broken, but I don't really think it's broken. And I finally yelled, I'm like, mommy, I broke my arm. Please come get me. And she heard, and that's when she came. She's like, I don't know why you did that. Your arm is not broken. They took me to the hospital and my arm was broken clean in half and it's just ridiculous like the fact that they don't want any problems to arise like you're dealing with a school full of kids you're gonna have issues pop up and it's like they wanted to hide things and sweep it under the rug all the time like there was another time where I was telling them I was sick I this just came to my mind I just kept telling them I'm sick I feel like I'm gonna puke And they're just like, yeah, well, your mom brought you to school, so you're fine. You're just going to have to deal with it. And I'm like, I'm telling you I'm about to puke. And they didn't believe me. And I remember we were learning about time because I had a paper that had a big clock on it. It looked like an alarm clock. I puked all over it. And then they acted mad at me. They're like, oh my God, you could have at least warned us that you you were going to be sick. And I'm like, "Uh, I was trying to warn you. Phyllis, who was Andrew's grandmother, might not recall the clock incident, but she definitely remembers the balance beam. She was just nasty. I mean, you, you, I can't even tell you how nasty. But anybody, anybody, I mean, I'm sure Becky told you about how Becky Becky has uh, arthroglyposis, you know? She's handicapped, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. You think she cared? She smacked her ass just as much as she smacked the other kids. And then when Becky fell one time... She, she breaks her arms easily because she can't control holding it because her arms are fused, mm-hmm. you know, like at the elbows. Mm-hmm. So she can't break a fall. So when she falls, she falls right on the arm. So she was screaming because she knew she broke her arm. And Miss Martin goes, oh, I don't think it's so bad. You can get up. And, and Becky couldn't get up by herself. She was just nasty, I'm telling you. The story haunts a lot of people including the little girl, about six years older, who had tried to distract Andrew with her jokes, with her bracelet. What sticks out most in her mind was the moment Andrew's mother hesitated in the face of her boss, Mrs. Martin. She was crying in pain, and her mom was there and was like, okay, I have to take her to the hospital. You know, she needs to be seen. And Susan was like, she's lying. Oh my God. She's fine. She's lying to you. And I was there. I saw her fall. I saw her crying. I saw her mom like, okay, who do I trust now? This person who's telling me she's lying or my crying daughter. And she ended up, I remember mom's like, are you lying? Like, you have to tell me the truth because it's expensive to take you to the hospital and stuff. And she's like, I'm not lying. Like, my arm hurts. And she she broke an arm. And Susan was saying she's lying. And I remember that as like, what is happening here? 
we talked before about like our kids, like you'd have to run me over with a truck to like get to my kid. For someone to say your child's arm is not broken, I mean, I'd be like, screw you. And I'm scooping the kid up and taking them to the hospital. She, she did eventually, but I saw how, you know, torn she was. Like, do I listen to this person telling me this or, you know, here's my child crying with a broken arm. Parents also learned quickly that there was no use in opposing Susan. One Berean father was shocked when at the all-parent-teacher meetings, Susan didn't seem to have mastered basic grade school manners. People would try to be talking, my dad would try to be speaking, and then Susan Martin would just like, you know, bulldoze and just scream over people. So there was no, she wouldn't let people like take turns speaking. Mm -hmm. She would just yell over them. So my dad was like, he, he, I remember he came home and he was like, that woman's just so rude. I couldn't believe like she wouldn't let anyone talk. Like you couldn't get a thought in. She would just scream over people. And so he had the idea of like having a talking stick. So like if, if you're holding this, you get to speak and then you can pass it to the next person so they can have a turn to speak. And so he brought that in to try to like, you know, hear other people's thoughts. And she didn't care that it was there. It was just... Yeah, same thing, speak over people. So he was just like, wow, she is just so, so rude. And I'm thinking, yes, this is what I've been telling you. I spoke to this father, who also recalled his excitement and pride when he successfully persuaded the town of Milford to let the school's choir sing in its yearly Christmas festival. There was just one caveat. They were only allowed to sing traditional Christmas songs, nothing modern. Modern songs, for an evangelical church like Milford Christian, are songs meant to proselytize, and Susan, who led the choir, was just itching to sing them. Always proud of her voice, here she is at the school's 2020 graduation. She's introduced by Loomer itself, who says she's singing the school's theme song. But this is a song uh, uh, that's really a declaration, I am a child of destiny. The word destiny, by the way, it, it means uh, among, it's got several definitions, but one of them, the one I like is, invincible necessity i'm a child of invincible necessity the thing that's most important the necessity of my life there's something for which god has put us on the planet for each one of us and when we pursue the necessity for each of our lives we have divine invincibility in the midst of that. So let's sing it with a heart of uh, understanding and determination. Back at the Christmas festival, the dad who'd worked so hard so his kids could sing and celebrate Christmas with the other kids of Milford realized Susan wasn't singing. 
She was looking around stealthily, making sure anyone from the town, anyone in charge, was out of earshot. Then she'd hiss at the children. His daughter remembered. The story of the Christmas event in downtown Milford where Susan wasn't supposed to sing any um, Christian songs, evangelical Christian songs. Did he talk to you about this? No. Well, I was there. You were there. Okay. But again, this shows me how out of touch with certain things I am because your dad was like, you know, I arranged it that we were allowed to sing traditional Christmas songs, but not the more modern ones. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, traditional is like Silent Night and like Hark the Herald Angels Sing and modern is like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or like Frosty the Snowman or something. And he's like, and then she started singing these proselytizing songs and your dad said he was the one that got in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, he was so angry because he's like, you know, they knew, and I remember because I was singing the songs because she had it was the kids singing, mm-hmm. and then she's like, she'd look around her, you know, look around her, and she's like, okay, Mary, did you know? Go, and she was like, she's like frantically trying to go start. Mary, did you know? And then she was singing it like super loud, and we were all you know singing it. Um, as we're at the choir. <laughs> From that point on, the town barred Milford Christian from participating in the festival. And instead of having a stern word with Susan, Loomer made the father who'd won permission for his children to perform apologize to her. This father left the church a long time ago, and he has a lot of regrets. It's obvious the nights of the talking stick and the Christmas festival still stick in his craw years later. But as a Christian, he told me, he was supposed to turn the other cheek if someone offended him rubbed him the wrong way. And as a recently born-again Christian learning the ways of the Lord at Berean, he was also taught to ignore that weird feeling in his gut, to give it up to God if things didn't make sense. God moved in mysterious ways, but if you were blessed and deserving, he would eventually reveal his reasoning to you. This way of thinking, the man told me, not only enabled but encouraged him to grin and bear a lot, like the service where one pastor, not Loomer, had been so slain in the spirit that he got down on all fours and started barking like a dog. The congregation carried on like nothing was amiss. Soon, the dad started calling Milford Christian the circus. He'd crack his kids up pretending to speak in tongues, mimicking Jim and his assistant pastor, Alan Parody, who just mimicked Jim. Jim clone, the dad called Alan. And he ignored other things that only seemed weird years later like in the early to mid-90s when he sold Mark his blue pickup with a shot engine and Mark quickly repainted it green. He didn't think to ask why Mark needed another pickup. He already had the gold one with a cab top. I'm not sure, but I believe that's the same truck that the park ranger saw Mark with that early fall night in 1988 in Huntington State Park. Let me take a quick detour here and talk about that night for a second when Mark was seen making a dash for the woods with his arms outstretched, like he was carrying a carpet or a kid. It's always bothered me for a reason I couldn't put my finger on. The pieces of the puzzle just don't fit. If Ranger Paul O'Connell thought Mark was throwing away more than garbage, why didn't he pursue him, radio him in, or at least wait with the abandoned truck till Mark got back? Conversely, if O'Connell wrote Mark off as a litterer, as he now tells me he did, Why linger and memorize every minute detail of the truck, down to its homemade toolbox and dented side? People dump trash there all the time, O'Connell told me. It was a notorious dumping spot. 
So if he thought Mark was just fleeing a ticket for littering, why would he remember the episode a year later, when the police came to question him in the summer of 1989? Joe has always pointed out that before O'Connell stopped speaking to me, stopped returning my calls, he would always pull back and ask if I had read his statement. I don't want to say anything that's not in my statement, he told me over and over. Despite the fact that we met at his favorite bar and spoke for hours, I recently brought this up to the detective on Doreen's case. I feel like I'm missing a puzzle piece, I told him. He nodded. Yep, your instincts are right, he told me. You are missing a piece. Of course, as per usual, the Wallingford police won't tell me what it is. And just like I'm racking my brain trying to figure out what I'm missing about that night in Huntington, the father from Berean has never gotten a satisfactory explanation about the time he drove Mark to the Hartford District Attorney's office, at Mark's request. My response to hearing this was exactly what you'd expect. Even now I'm surprised I didn't completely lose my mind and miss the details, or lack thereof. The man had sat outside in his car while Mark went in and took care of business, and when Mark came out, he drove him home. My questions were the obvious ones. What was the meeting about? I didn't ask, the man told me. Why did Mark need a ride? What year was this? How long was the meeting? Had Mark committed some sort of crime? Why the DA for Hartford and not Milford's County of New Haven? And what was the conversation like in that car? I don't remember, came the answer to each of my questions. It only sprang to mind recently, when your podcast came up. It took a while for him to notice, the dad told me, but suddenly he felt like the metaphoric frog in the pot. The water had been nice when he'd gotten in, but now he was being slowly boiled alive. I never saw my wife, the man told me. At first, she'd attended Sunday services and Wednesday Bible study at the church, but soon it was Saturdays too, and before he knew it, she was dedicating six or seven days or nights a week to Milford Christian. She also attended monthly meetings for the women's branch of Aglow, an organization describing itself as a transformational kingdom culture with mindsets not of this world, with a mission to lead women to Jesus Christ and provide opportunity for Christian women to grow in their faith and minister to others. Women's Aglow held fancy three-course dinners for the ladies, for which they dressed up and brought their daughters. Husbands clearly were not invited. Look, the dad told me, I'm not taking anything away from my ex-wife. She's a great woman and a great mother but I needed her. I couldn't do it on my own. He went to the pastor, again, not Jim, to tell him he needed his wife back. In response, the pastor climbed up on his desk and started rolling around, barking like a dog. This was not the same pastor, he told me, that had barked on all fours at that one Sunday service. Not the same pastor? I was dumbfounded. What did you do, I asked. I just laughed and walked out, the dad told me. What else can you do? I was out of the circus. It might have been different had he known how Milford Christian was actively trying to divide him not only from his wife, but from his kids, too. For Susan Martin and Jim Loomer especially, Milford Christian's way was the only way, and both adults and children were going to prostrate themselves before it, come hell or high water. I get the sense a lot of parents are divorcing over the church and over issues related to the church. Oh, they're so culty. They get 
in between the couple, they talk crap about, instead of, like, bringing the couple, like, together, trying mm -hmm. to help them, they'll try to separate them, and they would try to do that with children and parents, too. They, Susan Martin tried to do that with me and my parents. How'd she do that? There was a part of the, you know, education that they were giving us. It was like the earth was the center of the universe, mm -hmm. and when we were coming to that part of class, or my dad knew it was coming up, he's like, um, you're not going to take part in that. Like, it's not real. Mm -hmm. not true so you're just gonna sit that one out so um he didn't let me like go to that class period for a presentation and so later she, she took me out of class and it was just me and her in an office and she made me watch the movie with just me and her and she's like do you see now this is why your father is wrong she went behind his back yeah made me watch the movie and made me say yes this is i understand why my father's wrong and even though skipping the video had been her father's idea in the first place, he brushed off his daughter's complaints, just like Susan had instructed. Did you tell your dad or did you tell your parents about that experience? Yeah. Yeah. I, as soon as I came home, I was like, guess what you made me do? She made me watch this and she said that you were wrong and she made me say it. And I knew that that was like against anything that's right. You know, you can't go behind a parent's back. Mm -hmm. And because my dad specifically was like, don't watch that. I don't want you watching that. And she did it anyways, knowingly, because she took me out separately and made me say, this is why your father's wrong. So I was telling my parents stuff and complaining. And, like, I talked to my dad recently. He's like, I'm so sorry. Like, you did try to tell us, but we just thought it was like, yeah, kids don't like discipline. Kids don't like school mm -hmm. type thing. But he's like, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize it was this because of this. And it wasn't just Susan trying to bend people to her will. So I remember, like, just his office was kind of close to, the, like, the women's bathroom. There's, like, a hallway below the sanctuary mm -hmm. where the offices are, the bathrooms are. And... So I was, like, walking through that hallway. And he goes, oh, don't worry. Your dad will come around. Because my dad was, like, leaving the church. You know, he's like, we're, we're done here. Sometimes Jim's support of Susan is more literal than figurative. From early on, I knew how devoted she was to Milford Christian. So I wasn't surprised to hear people tell me she lived at the church. I know, I said, she's really devoted. No, they told me. That's not what I mean. And now I hear, of course, I don't live in Milford no more, but I hear through the grapevine that Pastor Jim had the, the basement of the church where we usually would have fellowship and have the school classes. Mm -hmm. uh, he made an apartment down there for her because she's in a wheelchair. By the time I heard this, I was already one step ahead of Phyllis because I knew the rumors are true. In the basement of the Little Eagles daycare, right next door to the church, Pastor Jim has in fact created a home for Susan out of what used to be a garage and a finished basement room. It's tiny, a source told me, with just a bedroom and a kitchen where there is an open shower. Just a shower head coming out of the wall with a drain, the source wrote. She has two air conditioners running, living easy. She prefers a chill climate. She's fat and sitting in the heat in that leather wheelchair. That's not fair, you're probably thinking. Susan may be evil, but she doesn't deserve to be shamed because of her size or her handicap. The fact that she receives disability payments 
and has had to live in Section 8 housing just because her legs don't work. But listen a bit more. See, some revere Mrs. Martin because they believe she, like Jim, has the power to heal, whatever that's worth. I saw online there was a service. I saw, like, looked it up online where Pastor Jim was talking about, like, taking somebody's cast off, oh my walking God. on, like, a broken leg or something. And it's on, the, it's on YouTube or whatever the thing that they use. But they heal people, you know, and supposedly. And then people are, like, back in their walkers, like, the next Sunday. But despite her power to heal, and being repeatedly healed herself, Susan would always fall back into some ailment, some sickness, for which she also claimed an undue deference. That's another facet to her strange spell. Because how you see Mrs. Martin, what you think of her, depends on where and how you encounter her. Remember that put-on Canadian accent? I hear she has about five others that she'll flip through, depending on her audience. At all of the black churches in Bridgeport, for example, they refer to her as that sweet British woman. Recently, the detective on Doreen's case asked me if I'd seen Susan. Only in picture and video, I said. Yeah, he responded before I could say anything else. Turns out Susan had been there the night of Mark's parking lot arrest last February. She's like this sweet little grandma lady in a wheelchair, the cop told me, spouting God bless you's all over the place. The hell she is, I told him. Because besides not being sweet, Susan has been spotted in a lot of, let's say, compromising positions. One congregant saw her at Starbucks, wheelchair cast aside while she stood at the counter. Susan didn't respond when they approached her, said her name, just pretended they weren't there. Her choice to appear in public without the chair is an interesting one, as she has been seen using it to power down a highway's breakdown lane. And she'd also been seen walking and even running, once up a flight of stairs, once to slam a door when she was almost busted. Because Susan's disability, in one word, is bullshit. I've been told, too, about, like, the healings that go on. And it's so surprising to me, like, you know, Pastor Loomer's a healer and he'll heal this person. And then the next Sunday, they're back in their, you know, wheelchair with their walker. Or, right? Well, I mean, if it's Susan Martin you know, we're talking about it's just because she likes to pretend that she's sick. That's what I've heard. The woman faked brain cancer once. Okay, I do I do know she faked a stroke. Yeah, and- um, she, she tried to claim she was, uh, it was around that same time that, that she, had a, she had brain cancer as well, and then when she was asked to do the scan, she kind of backed down a little bit. Who was asking her to do a scan? Um, I believe it was some of her children. I see, okay. You know, as far as I heard from not only like, you know, a stroke, it was an ability to write and she couldn't take herself to the bathroom and she couldn't bathe herself. Right. Um, but I mean, the whole wheelchair act is, is Right, because I think she's been in and out of that wheelchair, right, that people have seen. And you don't have to take my word for it or that of some anonymous source you may think just has an axe to grind with a woman who ruined their childhood. Because all this time, during all these episodes, I've had a secret weapon one whose voice has been strong and steady throughout this season. And that voice is Susan's daughter, Emily Martin. How else do you think I know that Emily secreted a chihuahua named Face away in her sweatshirt? That she made John Lennon her personality and tattooed him on her arm? That she made Susan chase her before she could be beaten? How else would I know about Susan's accents, her basement apartment, 
her penchant for SVU, The Sopranos, and A Night of Oreos. It didn't start. It, if you look back, knowing her our entire life, it started in the 90s. We lived in a very small house in a not great part of town in the early 90s before my dad had his come up. Um, and next to us, next door, we had a nurse that lived next door. And the entire time we lived in that house, Susan would have seizures. Like weekly, she would have these grand mal seizures. And the nurse would have to come over and help her out, da da da. As soon as we moved across town to the nicer part of town, living in a very lovely home with no nurses around, Susan's seizures disappeared. She never had another one. Susan's kids were often used as tools to garner sympathy. I remember when I was 13, I had gotten bronchitis. Asthma as I was a kid, I had lung problems. I got bronchitis, and I couldn't go to the farm to work my shift or go to my lessons. Mm-hmm. Because my doctor told me, like, hey, it's probably best. It was, like, the middle of winter. Like, don't go to the farm. Stay home. Rest up. She told everyone I had pneumonia, and I didn't. But she told everyone I had pneumonia. And then even when I was feeling better, she made me stay home a few more days. She tried to, uh, well, she did tell everyone that Jacob had bone cancer, my middle brother, that he had bone cancer when he was a kid. But then as soon as she went to another doctor for, like, confirmation, then it was like, oh, it was it was that worldly doctor. He just didn't know what he was doing. You need to be going to Christian doctors. And then Jacob didn't have bone cancer anymore. Listeners, it gets so much worse. I'd say this is only the beginning, but it's not for Emily Martin. Perhaps more than anyone else, Emily suffered under Susan. I didn't know any different than getting beat, because I was getting beat and my friends were getting beat at home. Yep. So, to me, I didn't have an abusive mom. I know now that I had a wildly abusive mom. Right. But back then, she was just my mom. But to other kids who weren't getting beat at home, because there were kids that went there, weren't getting beat at home, they fucking hated her. Right. Because who wouldn't? Because who wouldn't? Yeah, because like I said, the sense that I'm getting is not just like the physical abuse or the beatings at the school. It's like... That she was lashing out at kids for, you know, or or having her own issues on display for, like, children to see. I mean, yeah, she was probably one of the most dramatic. I don't want to be mistaken here. She is severely mentally ill. Okay. And I don't just mean, like, she's depressed or she's got anxiety. I mean, like, in 2008, the woman faked a stroke. Okay. And she has been in a wheelchair ever since. A wheelchair that she does not need. The woman is in a motorized wheelchair mm-hmm. when she has use of the legs that her God supposedly gave her. Are her legs supposed to not work? Is that the story that everyone is given? Yes. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's fooled everyone. She's fooled the state. She's on disability. She had she on Section 8 for a while. I mean, now she's just living at the church. Right. But, yeah, no, she's got, she had us fooled for a while until we saw her walking. <laughs> Right. Like, she had me taking care of her. I'm talking washing her fucking ass. Oh, my God. At how old? I was 16, 17, taking care of her. Mm Mm-hmm. Bringing her her appointments, scheduling her appointments, bathing her. This woman would shoot on herself and make me clean it. Oh, my God. And so when you saw her walking, I mean... (laughs) Is there, is, well, tell me, I mean, is there a realization on her face like, oh, I got caught? Is there a confrontation? Oh, yeah. There very much was. So 
she had to take this stroke and she was just outright like abusing me <laughs> emotionally even sometimes physically from her fucking wheelchair she would slap me in the face and so I moved out at one point and then she was alone and had no one to coddle her so she went and picked up a boyfriend from oh my god it's a drug rehab in Bridgeport she went and picked out a boyfriend from a drug rehab and brought him to live with her and one day when I was at the house <laughs> he had a uh, he assaulted me. He grabbed my ass. This man went up the stairs, and Susan followed. Got out of her wheelchair and went up the stairs. Emily's got tons of ridiculous stories like this about her mother. The least of which is her crippled tail going up in smoke in front of the entire Martin family when her new boyfriend slapped her teenage daughter's ass and got run out on a rail. Which brings me back to my original question. Why has Susan never gotten run out on a rail? Just where are those villagers with their pitchforks? And why, after the talking stick, the Christmas festival, Susan's torment of a disabled kid with a broken arm, or her penchant for using her own daughter as a public prop for abuse, why doesn't Pastor Loomer weigh in? Well, it should be obvious by now that Mrs. Martin, headmistress and head disciplinarian of Milford Christian Academy, wasn't just some rogue agent. And James Loomer wasn't just Susan's pastor, or landlord, or boss. He was, quite literally, her biggest cheerleader. I don't know why Berean gave all of these people power. I don't know why Pastor Jim gave all of these people power. They literally... So before school, every day, you had to go upstairs and have like a little church pretty much and there was one day that pastor jim brought mrs martin up and basically made her like a model freaking example telling teachers and students that we should all be more like mrs martin and it was like some weird cult shit like i felt like he was brainwashed and of course, she's standing there with this smile on her face, just eyeing, going down the rows of people, seeing their reactions. And God forbid someone was laughing or talking or whispering to the person next to him, she'd snap at you. That was her thing. She'd snap. And you, you knew, like, you were probably going to get it later if you got snapped at. <clears throat> but... It was real screwed up. Like, she was made head dis disciplinarian. She was, like, like, idol. They, like, made her, like, an idol. And then they put freaking Mr. Allen, head of kids' church. And, you know, here there were rumors going around about him being a pedophile. And this was before he actually got convicted of anything. There were rumors of him being a pedophile. Oh, sure, why not? Let's put him as head of freaking kids' church. Yep, you heard that right. Alan Parody, assistant pastor to James Loomer and husband to Janet, enemy to birdseed everywhere, and the head of the school's daycare, is a convicted child molester. You're going to hear all about him, too, very soon, I promise. Like I've said, this has taken a while to unravel because all of these incidents, all of these personalities, are multidimensional and interrelated. Sure, Susan is Jim's good friend, 
and so is Pastor Allen. And the third leg of that proverbial stool is Mark Vincent himself, to whom Jim provided a place to rest his head before Mark literally led the police, and me, to a second sanctuary, to his lair, that cold February night. Unraveling Milford Christian's decades of dark secrets is like peeling an onion with layers of rot. And you know what they say, the fish rots from the head. Let's sing the car.